Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 2, Episode 6, and today we are going to be talking about Crazy Rich Asians from 2018. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? Uh, going pretty good, and how about you, Zach? Doing well. Uh, um, we we sort of traded traded rom-coms that we uh, <laughs> love here, so this will be... A fun way to flip the script on last week. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. And we had to kind of change around our schedule a little bit uh, in order to get this one in. But I was really excited when we got this one on the list because I've been wanting to watch it for quite a while. and needed a good reason to to sit down and do it. Yeah. Uh, So why don't I talk a little bit about my personal history with this. So the Crazy Rich Asians is based on the first book of a trilogy, the which has the the first book has the same name, Crazy Rich Asians, and those were books that Mary had read before I did, and she kept telling me that I should read them, and I ended up bringing them on vacation with us, and it was the vacation that I ended up proposing on. And so I have very fond memories of reading these books because I had brought a science fiction book that was a lot harder to focus on. And so for the first like day and a half of that trip before I had proposed, I was just like freaking out about everything and worried about, you know, (laughs) what if like just something goes wrong or whatever the thing that I had planned didn't work out. And so I really was not able to focus on anything or sleep or eat or really do anything. But I was able to uh, read these books. And so I think they're, to me, they were just really fun beach reads that sort of flew by. But I don't mean beach reads in like a pejorative term, because I do think that there's a lot of really good stuff in them but they're all but they're very easy reads and they're very quick nice yeah Uh, yeah so so the source material was something that we both loved and when the movie was announced we were very excited for that and so we went to see it in theaters it was something that we were tracking and very excited about and we saw it and we both loved it they made a fair amount of changes to the movie from the book but I think we'll get into some of them or all of them or a lot of them and I I think they just did a really good job adapting it and we left the theater feeling pretty pretty happy and excited and I knew I was pretty sure it was one that you had not seen and so it's always a little nerve-wracking when we when you recommend a movie to someone that you really liked and it's you know it's been three years since you've seen it and hopefully it's gonna (laughs) hopefully it's gonna hold up hopefully you don't lead your friend and podcast podcast partner astray and yeah that's that's what I came into it with this time what about you what were your uh expectations here yeah, so this movie came out in 2018, and it was on my to-be-watched list that year. I really wanted to watch it. 
Uh, but the, unfortunately, the release date was August 15th, which is the first week of school. Oh, and so brutal. as a teacher, yeah. just anything that comes out mid-August through the beginning of sem- September is so hard for me to get to watching. Uh, because I, there's no way I can make it to the theater to watch it. And I don't have time to sit down and watch any of those things. And then right as September is hitting, that's when all, you know, like the Oscar content- contenders and everything hit. So always August, the back half of August is just a complete black hole for me as far as watching films. So I've wanted to watch this one and just have not been able to fit it in the schedule since then. I was very excited, though, for it because I love everyone in it and involved with it. So, you know, um, (laughs) that was a high on my list of things to watch. Um, and I also, um, you know, I just love watching films about, uh, the deal with Chinese culture in particular. Uh, I speak Chinese, um, a little bit. I'm, I don't want to claim that I'm super good or anything. I can speak at like a first grade level, uh, here, but you know, and I watch a lot of Chinese cinema, um, as part of, you know, like learning languages and just learning more about China. And so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of films and a lot of the the actors from that cinema. So that's where I knew a lot of these people from. And I was really excited to watch it because of those things. And uh, when we decided to put this on the list, I was very glad that we had added it to the list. Nice. Yeah, I'm glad we were glad we were able to fit it in here. Yes. So let's talk a little a little bit of history here. So this movie didn't come out too long ago. It came out in, as you said, August 15th of 2018. So <laughs> obviously this was smack dab in the middle of Donald Trump's presidency. And for me, this movie carried a lot of levity in a time that was, um, you know, it was just a really scary time and it was a time where the the news was just like horrific every day and I think that's obvious that goes without saying but it was also gave insight into Asian culture when it felt like everything in our country was just getting more more and more America-centric and more and more white supremacists, to be honest. And so there were a couple big events that I pulled from this year, from 2018, that just highlighted what was going on with foreign policy and internationally between the U.S. and the rest of the world. So May 8th, we withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement. (laughs) President Donald Trump withdrew us from the Iran nuclear agreement. And on June 19th, we withdrew, we, this country that we reside in, withdrew from the UN's Human Rights Council. Uh, (laughs) Both of these things were widely criticized at the time. I don't think anything has changed since then. I think most people, most experts on the situation would continue to criticize those. So yeah, that's, that sucked (laughs) for lack of a better, a better way to put that. Yeah, it was terrible. 
Yeah, no. terrible. And then another big event that did happen this year, and I mean, if it, it feels a little strange to mention, I suppose, because I don't think it like directly impacts the movie, and you can find an event like this in most years in American history now, unfortunately, but it's just like when I was scrolling through the list of events, it's like, yep, that's the one I remember, and that's the Parkland shootings, which happened on Valentine's Day of 2018. Yeah, and, you know, it does happen a lot, but it felt like, you know, for a brief moment after the Parkland shooting, like, maybe people would care about uh, violence and gun violence in the United States. And, you know, yeah. Uh, at the time I knew nothing was going to happen, but it felt like maybe, but I it didn't did feel different. And it? it did, but I didn't trust my feelings and I was justified in not trusting them. So, um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, a few other things that happened this year that I noted because of either relevance or what have you on June 12th, Donald Trump, who had previously said he wanted to meet with Kim Jong-un, the meeting happened on June 12th in Singapore, which I thought was kind of interesting because we're (laughs) talking about crazy rotations. I noticed that as well when I was looking through, and uh, it goes into a lot of the political situation in Singapore as well because, you know, it's it's a complicated place politically, so that was pretty interesting to me. Yeah. And then July 25th, uh, just so it's not all not all doom and gloom, we found water on Mars. Yay! Or found proof of water on Mars, which was something that was pretty exciting at the time. Uh, yeah, it was exciting. And also ties in with the, this film, um, interestingly enough. It's, it's relevant. Wait, is that a joke? No, it's not. It's not a joke, but it'll come up later on. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll cool. get to it. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was one other thing that I that I that I thought about that happened during this year that I think is worth mentioning, which is there was a big fight going on in Congress in the United States over immigration, and there was the mm-hmm. possi- there was a bill that kind of went forward and that would have reformed immigration in the United States, extended DACA, and also given money towards building a border wall. So there was a lot of debate going on with this, and eventually those things fell through. So you would never see those on like a list of events that happened during that year. But the idea of immigration and the othering of non-white people, I think is really emblematic in those debates that were happening. And I think that this film and the response that people had to this film I think a lot of it has to do with the the way people were kind of fighting against so much racism here in the United States. And a lot of that uh, racism um, was targeted at the time towards Asian people and has only grown worse in, in the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think that was a big deal for when this film came out. Yeah, ab- Absolutely. Do you have any other events from 2018 that you want to mention? That is all that I've got. Yeah. All right. So the as we said, this movie is based on a book or a series of books by Kevin Kwan. So the first book was Crazy Rich Asians, which came out in 2013. 
And then China Rich Girlfriend is the second book that came out in 2015, and Rich People Problems came out in 2017. And this went through, you know, had options picked up various places, and he had a bunch of different producers that were interested in it. I was... I don't know if I should have been shocked, but considering this was the late teens, the late 20 teens, I was still pretty surprised to see that one of the producers that he, <laughs> uh, that they were in talks with did try and whitewash the movie. So they wanted to cast a Caucasian actress as Rachel, which is just, it like, it seems unfathomable and Kevin Kwan obviously was very against this, and so he ended up <laughs> reworking the deal where, um, or whoever he optioned it next to, he optioned it for like one dollar just so that he could retain the retain some decision making and some creative control over the the final product. Yeah, oh, that's so rough. I just uh it does not surprise me and i remember when the discussions were happening around that uh i remember it popping up in my social media feed that they wanted to whitewash the character of rachel and it's just uh i don't know it's uh i mean it was 2018 you'd think that people would have some you know uh some perspective on this but they just didn't and that year in films had so much like with this film and with black panther um having some these huge casts uh with actors uh that belong to the demographic groups that it was representing it was one of the times that really proved to hollywood that that it was a good investment for them it always was and they always should have been doing this but this was a year that proved that that it was a good investment that would make them money that makes sense yeah yeah yeah. i mean we we sort of we haven't mentioned it yet but this was a pretty bananas year for for movies there was black panther as you mentioned that was the number one domestic grossing movie this year and then followed uh pretty closely by a, a little movie called avengers infinity war and then finishing out their trifecta at the top disney also had incredibles too so it was it was a huge year and marvel had another movie with ant-man and the wasp and then you know some other super superhero movies round out the top 10 aquaman deadpool 2 and uh number 10 was bohemian rhapsody for that year yeah not only was it a big year it was the biggest year it is the biggest box office year on record oh yeah yeah I guess the only year it's really competing with is 2019, though, right? Uh, yes, correct. Yeah. So, because 2020 so, and 2021 I'm, have been so much lower. Yeah. That makes sense, though, that it would be... I mean, having... Bla- I, I kind of forgot that Black Panther and Infinity War were in the same year. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It's... Uh, though, I find it interesting. The box office had been kind of on a little bit of decline... Mm-hmm. since oh more or less like 2013 like the numbers were going up but the numbers relative to to inflation were going down and so when two when 2018 came around and these movies just were such huge amazing spectacular hits and some of them not so much expected hits 
Like, people knew that Black Panther was going to make money, but they didn't realize how much money it was going to make. Uh, and this film, Crazy Rich Asians, again, made a lot of money, you know, $180 million, but uh, people did not expect it to make quite that much money. And you had a bunch of those kind of popping up in that time period. Is that domestic? Um, 180? 180 domestic, yes. And so, uh, yeah. yeah that's... And like 239 international. Correct, yes. Like... Yeah. 180 domestic, 239 uh, worldwide. And that was with a only with, with a budget of only thirty million. Yes, the, which <laughs> only is thirty million. That is a huge return on investment. That is you know a smashing success. And yep. uh, when this film came out, just the it the return on investment was so good, especially with the cast that they had put together. It led to the movie Shang Chi and the casting that got put together for that one. And I don't know if. It would have happened the way that it did without crazy rich Asians paving the way before it. Have, are you speculating on that, or has that been? I'm speculating. Uh, explicitly yeah. concerned. That's Got that's it. the speculation, but the an announcement for Shang Chi came after this film, so I don't know. It's a yeah. I, I don't think it's too too uh, risky of a speculation to make. No, it makes total sense. I just didn't know if you had seen that somewhere. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Kevin. Fiji had come out and said something like that, that it influenced them or gave them confidence to be able to greenlight that project. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, me either. So I did want to quickly, after the that unfortunate incident with the producer trying to whitewash the movie, I did... It, the story of how this came to be is a little interesting. So they... He ended up getting picked up by Color Force, or the it ended up getting optioned by Color Force, which is a film company run by Nina Jacobson. And that's a company that she started after she got fired from Disney. I think uh, Buena Vista Studios, maybe? Yes. And so they had, it looks like they had eight movies under their belt before this one came out. Uh, four of them were Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, and then One Day, and then four of them were Hunger Hunger Games. And she, it was very important to her that they take this movie outside of how movies typically get funded in Hollywood, because it was very, she, based on the source material, she thought it was very important that it stays Asian-focused and has a strong Asian cast. And they eventually hooked up with Ivanhoe Pictures, where they got a... I think they had a screenwriter at Color Force, but then Ivanhoe Pictures brought in a screenwriter who was Asian to <laughs> make sure that everything everything felt correct. And that's also when they got hooked up with John Chu, who was the the director for the film. Yeah. And... I, I have to make a confession here real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, looking over this list of films by Color Force, it's possible, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but it's possible that this is the studio uh, that I have watched the highest percentage of their films. <laughs> um, really? Because I have three, seen three of the Diary of Wimpy Kid uh, movies, and I think I've seen all four of the Hunger Games films, and then this one. So, you know... Uh, brushing up there on 90% of the films that this studio has made. You haven't seen One Day. I haven't seen One Day. I don't even know anything about it. I don't either. I'm sad to say that I was so... 
I feel like in kind of stark contrast to this movie, the first Hunger Games I felt like was, and maybe if I saw it now I would feel differently, but I felt was such a paint-by-numbers adaptation and that they missed so many ways to make it better because it, like, you know, make it an adaptation that I then didn't see any of the rest of the movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you missed out that much. They were big productions. Uh, I, I gotta say, I, <laughs> I've seen so many of these movies, and I didn't like them. Um, like the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie I have seen because my kids like them, but I do not. And so just, just to clarify there, uh, I have been forced to sit down and watch those, uh, and the Hunger Games films were kind of a similar thing so i don't know it's just uh you know sometimes you you watch things that you aren't too pleased with watching and that's a lot of what i've seen from the studio so so yeah so that's how that's how the movie came to be came to be made and then the other thing that i thought was kind of interesting was there was a huge bidding war for distribution rights for this movie between Warner Brothers and Netflix. And it looks like the deal that Netflix offered was <laughs> actually pretty bananas. They offered full artistic freedom. Uh, they greenlit the trilogy up front, offered to greenlight the trilogy up front, and then they would do advances of seven figures minimum for all of the stakeholders. It's a pretty but good deal. Oh, I mean, I don't understand how they could have turned it down looking at it. I mean, we don't know what Warner Brothers offered, but we know that they didn't greenlight the trilogy up front. So, Well, I, I can tell you what probably would have led to them turning it down is that at the time period, Netflix was not uh, releasing very many of its films in theaters. And so they they really weren't doing that at the time period, and it kind of became a bigger thing later on. Uh, and so I imagine yeah. that that's the distribution on the streaming service that they wanted to have it in theaters. And that's that's a pretty big deal for a lot of filmmakers. They want to have it in the theater. Yeah, your hunch is exactly correct. That The Wikipedia article specifies that Kevin Kwan, the original author, and uh, John Chu, the director, wanted it to have the theatrical release and it says that the reason they wanted that was because they thought the movie would have a big cultural impact for sure and they didn't want it to get didn't want it to get swallowed by netflix yeah it makes sense all of that makes sense uh i'm brushing off my shoulders obviously i'm so smart for figuring that out but uh yeah yeah but also read the show notes while we're recording what are you doing (laughs) i should have done that yeah exactly (laughs) Uh, I'm just commenting on stuff that's lit, written right here. I just had to scroll down like a centimeter farther. Yeah. <laughs> so, but oh well, yeah. So, oh, and I guess I should also should say like this movie did, it does look fantastic. Oh, it's and amazing. And it looked fantastic in the theaters. And yeah, I get why you would want people to be able to have that experience. Yeah. And I mean, the sound design and everything that, that was really good, very good. I didn't see it in theater, but it looks seems like a very good theater film to me. Yeah. So let's talk about reaction. How did how did you find your initial viewing here? Um I loved it. And like I really really loved it. I enjoyed this one so much and mm-hmm. it was 
only three times so far uh, during like our stream episodes have I gotten completely like lost in the film um, and kind of forgot that I was watching for a podcast. Uh, and it's this one. It was The Little Mermaid and Inside Out. So it's uh, mm-hmm. I really got lost in this one. I enjoyed it. I turned it on and started watching it with the intention of breaking it up into two sections. I uh, ended up watch, watching the entire thing. Um, my spouse started watching it with me, and so we got completely involved in it. And, yeah, it was – I loved it. I have it um, right now as number 204 on my flick chart list out of 1,500 movies. So very highly rated. It's I, I, I thought it was a great film. Yeah, and it is – I don't know if people – you know, people listening to this have had the experience of watching a movie for for a podcast. I certainly hadn't until we did this, but it it is a lot easier to have that experience of losing yourself in a movie when it's your first time watching it. For sure. Yeah. So my reaction this time, the... I think I was... I mean, I loved it again. I don't think... I think I loved it just as much as when I watched it the first time. The I was really impressed this time, I guess, just all over again with how many smart decisions they made in adaptation. And I think that's something that when I saw it the first time I had... I get, like, really nervous when I'm watching a movie that has source material that I really love or that I have very high expectations for because there's just, like, that worry of, like, is it going to live up? Is it going to... Am I going to, like, feel bad? How are... I'm really liking it, but is, like, everyone else going to really like it? Am I being... (laughs) Am I being an idiot? It's hard to just sit and enjoy something in in that circumstance and just... It really is. Yeah, it's. I find it really difficult. I have gotten better at that over the years, but only through lots and lots of experience. Mm-hmm. And it's just difficult when you have all these expectations going into something. Whereas for me, if I'd gone in, you know, on the day that it was released in theater, I would have had zero expectations, except that it was going to have a lot of Asian people in it. And, uh, you know, it would have lived up to that. Yeah. So... I yeah I think I think I was more impressed with the adaptation this time. There were a couple scenes that I bumped on this time that I did not. Well, it's hard to tell if I didn't bump on them before or if I just don't remember bumping on them before because my experience with the film was so overwhelmingly positive. But we'll we'll talk about those a little bit later. Yeah, and I wanted I guess probably in the cleanup section. I wanted to add on. You you mentioned that there were some things that you kind of bumped up against that you didn't notice before. And for me, I watched this film, but then afterwards thinking about it, I actually have a lot of criticisms of the film. Mm-hmm. It's that doesn't affect like how much I enjoyed the film or that I think it was a landmark film and a well made film and a good film. But I also have a lot of criticisms on a lot of different levels of the film. So I have a lot to say about it, despite the fact that I enjoyed it a lot. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And, you know, we're big proponents of being able to separate where we think good craft is and where we think, you know, ethical creation is and how 
we experience things and don't think that those always have to be a one-to-one comparison. Yeah, exactly. And it, and, it's, and we've talked a little bit about like paranoid reading versus reparative reading. And, you know, there's some of those issues at, at stake as well in this one. Yeah, I think you can you can view it both ways and get a lot. <laughs> you can get plenty of fodder for whichever reading you're you're choosing to use exactly or whichever one you get shoehorned into using right uh so let's talk a little bit about the the people here we don't have to spend too much time on it but i did want to mention the director john chu so previous to this he had directed seven films that were or i guess five films that were dance films, American dance films or American music films. So he had a couple of step-up movies and then a few others. And then he had done the Justin Bieber concerts and Now You See Me Too, which was an American heist film. And so I think the, I think that was it. Those were all of his movies as a director leading up to Crazy Rich Asians. And I think it's a really interesting launching pad to get to Crazy Rich Asians because you can see the the comfortable, the comfortability, the comfort, (laughs) you can see the comfort with having large production numbers and with making sure that things just look great and making sure that the movie moves in an expedient fashion. And I don't, have you seen either of the Step Up movies or any of the Step Up movies, Maddie? Yes, I have seen them, all three of them. And I've also seen In the Heights, which came out after these. So uh, I'm pretty, I was pretty familiar with John Chu before coming into this film and I was familiar with him for, you know, the music and the dance numbers and all of those kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. when I saw that he was involved with crazy rich Asians, I really enjoyed all of those films and I was really excited to watch John Chu's take on this romantic comedy because of that. Yeah. I think like you can see the, the wedding sequence, you know, which is, Uh well, so much of this movie is just about, how great it looks and these amazing sights and having like just all of this money that the young family has and just seeing it so lavishly displayed but it's all all of those sequences just feel choreographed and impeccably designed and i think that experience really comes through here i agree um it feels it feels so much like a John Chu movie as I was watching it. Um, And it feels like a dance movie, but without all the dancing. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, because as you said, there's so much choreography uh, that goes into all of these different scenes, even though they aren't necessarily, you know, doing a dance number. Yeah. And one of the things about... I don't even really know how or why, but when I think of... Crazy Rich Asians and In the Heights, which you mentioned is his movie that comes after this. What One of the things that just pops into my head for both of those movies is they are just both extremely bright and colorful. And so are the step-up films, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's just something that's part of his palette. It is. Um, and I haven't seen Now You See Me too, but you know what? I bet you anything that it is also similar in that regard. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, so that's John Chu. That's our director here. And then we also wanted to, you wanted to mention uh, Henry Golding, yeah? Yeah, so Henry Golding uh, plays Nick Young in this film, and it's kind of his first real film. He was doing this, like, variety show, mm-hmm. like this variety music show that he would do for, like, 15 minutes a night in... I can't remember what this is at, but it's over in Asia. It's a very small role, though, so it, it's not like anything big that he was doing. And there was a lot of controversy over casting Henry Golding in this film. I don't know if you found some of that controversy as you were researching, but... No, um, I didn't. What's it about? Yeah, so it's really complicated, and it deals with some of the, the issues that come into this film, but Henry Golding is... So he is mixed race, he is Malay, and he is also white. So he has a white parent and a Malay parent. And so he is not ethnically Chinese. He is Asian because he is of Malay descent. And a lot of people were very upset at the time that this lead in the film was not a full-blooded Chinese person, as as people were saying at the time period. And so I just want to clarify that I think it's... I think that criticism is unfounded. I think that it's really important, uh, you know, as a a person of Malay heritage, he he is an Asian person, even though he may have a white parent. And additionally, being a Malay person, he is of the indigenous ethnic group from Singapore, which mm. is was colonized by the British and then also has this colonizing effect from China. And so I th- the way that I read it at the time period is there was a lot of criticism on this regard that was it just... I did not like the way that it was treated and the way that Henry Golding was treated in this regard. And I know there's some controversy because a lot of people thought that they shouldn't be having... A lot of people were making accusations that the film was being whitewashed because he has a white parent. And I think in this case, I don't think those criticisms are 100% are 100% unfound, founded. And a big part of that is all the other factors of his heritage that comes into this part. And was was this criticism primarily before the movie came out? Uh, yes, primarily before the movie came out. And then... That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And then the other actress that was criticized for this was uh, Sonoya Mizuno, who is also... She is of mixed descent, a white parent and a Japanese parent. She Her role is a lot smaller in the film so she didn't get as much criticism as henry golding did but you know i think who does she play she plays uh, araminta oh yeah yeah so yeah i don't know that's it's something that was happening at the time period and i think it affected some people's ability to enjoy the film but i think it's important to recognize you know this there is a lot of dynamics to asian cultures and Asian ethnicities that I think that a lot of people in the United States, especially white people, and uh, are just not aware of and are not going to pick up on at all. And this film had some of those controversies. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I didn't read these criticisms, but anything that sort of 
policing the purity of a bloodline just feels it feels squicky you know yeah for sure and you know i don't know it's it's also tricky just with the 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 story happening in singapore and there's some things that i wanted to get to when we get into all that stuff but these are some of the criticisms that i have i think there's a lot of valid criticisms to be had about the film and that all deal with these intersections of race and Asian identity that are very complicated. And this is one of those things, but I, I don't think the criticism on Henry Golding was justified at, at the time. Or I, I should say yeah. not 100% justified. I can see some of the arguments that are being made, but I, I think that you have to take in, into account uh, his indigenous descent. Fair enough, yeah. And separate separate from that, when I went and looked at his filmography previous to this movie, I was really just shocked that he had basically nothing. Because he is, like, you watch him in this movie, and if you don't know anything, which I essentially didn't, it's like, oh, that guy's been playing a leading man in this type of role for five, six, seven years. He's so good at it. Yeah, it's a, he's pretty good at it, and he is... Uh, gorgeous as well. So, you know, oh, that he's, helps. He's a dream boat for sure. Yeah, he's yeah. great. <laughs> and then we also wanted to talk a little bit about Aquafina. So Aquafina had been, you know, her music and rap career had taken off, what, three, four or five years before this. That sounds right. But in terms of being on film, 2018 was really the year of Aquafina. She had, this was really just her third movie as an actor but this year she had dude which she was uh which was on netflix and she carried the fourth highest billing on that then she was also in oceans eight where she was much further down on the billing then this movie came out and she has a you know not a leading role but has a lot of a lot of screen time and a lot of really good work in this movie. And then she had one more film that came out this year, right, Maddie? Yeah, she did have she did have another one that came out, a film called The Farewell, which so for some perspective on 2018 as well. In 2018, I made the very intelligent and wise decision of watching 100 films that year. So the fact that I didn't get to Crazy Rich Asians is kind of even worse in that regard. Uh, so I watched, but I watched a lot of films and some of them were very bad, but one of them was exceptionally good. My favorite film of the year. And it is, it is cracked my top 30 films of all time. It is a film called the farewell and stars Aquafina as top billing on that one directed by Lulu Wong. Mm. And I love that film so much. It is just, oh, one of the films that I adore so tremendously. And Aquafina is amazing and perfect in that film. That film should have won Best Picture in the year that it came out. It was so good and just so wonderful and it just directed so fabulously. And in my opinion, the biggest reason why it didn't get really acknowledged at the Academy Awards for either the Best Picture or for a lot of the acting credits was because so much of the film is in Chinese and it's an it's an English language film but there's a lot of Chinese language speaking that goes on in the film and so I think just the uh just the I don't know how to say this 
the racism of the academy really shown through oh, subtle yeah <laughs> putting it subtly yeah. uh yeah mm-hmm. the bias that they have against a non-english languages really uh made this film not win as many awards but that that movie the farewell with aquafina is incredible all everybody should go watch it it's so good yeah and then following this year like she's continued to do really well for herself in hollywood just this year she was in shang chi and also uh raya the last dragon yeah uh two movies that i loved yeah so yep yeah and she does a great job in both of those yeah she does do you have any more personnel that you want to talk about or should we move on to talking about some specific scenes here let's get into the scenes all right so the first scene that i wanted to talk about is this opening scene i guess it's not the opening opening scene but it's the opening scene with Nikki and Rachel, where Nikki, they're in a restaurant eating, well, he's eating her dessert, and she's chastising him because he could order his own dessert, but it's really a lot more fun to eat hers. And he asks her to go east with him, and they have a little bit of banter, like, uh, <laughs> just further east in New York, you want to go to Astoria? And then he says no to Singapore we've been dating for a year and I'd like you to like you to meet my family and see where I grew up and the but then as he's asking her this you get an over the shoulder shot of him to a couple of young women who see them kiss and walk by and snap a picture and then this starts this and I love this sequence. It starts this flurry of like text messages and you see it really creates this excitement of seeing how quickly the message travels and you see like, oh my God, Nikki's dating this girl. Nikki's dating who? Who is she? And you see it travel between all of the different places and the little texts are popping up on the screen and the uh, it goes all the way across the world and eventually lands at the Bible study that Nikki's mom is having and someone asks Nikki's mom how is Nikki bringing a girl to the wedding and she's like no and eventually there you know more people start to get the texts and Eleanor Nick's mom eventually ends up calling Nick and saying uh hey are you bringing a girl to the wedding and Nick they're still at the still at the restaurant nick answers and says uh we were just talking about that that's so funny that you that you know that and then they basically have their first confrontation where she basically says well she she can't stay here and then he says fine we'll book a hotel and then he goes back and uh takes the last bite of his dessert and uh lies to Rachel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love the scene. Uh, it's just, and one of the things that I love oh. when they're passing all this gossip behind, uh, around mm-hmm. is as I was watching it, I was like, Oh, is this like the next day? Or, you know, trying to figure that stuff out. Like how fast is this going? Because it's going through a lot of different time zones. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, is this, how fast is this traveling exactly? And then it comes back and they're still in the restaurant. You're like, Oh, that was like, that was like two minutes. It, he looks over at these girls that took the selfie and they're like 
looking back over and on their way out the door. So it was so fast, you know, like two to five minutes is all the time that it took. But because they're in different time zones, you know, it spreads all across these different places. And it, it gives this illusion that maybe it's taking more time until that moment really hits. And it was great filmmaking there. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I wrote down and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this scene. I think that's intentional. I think you're supposed to really feel like, oh, we're seeing this montage. And then you get jarred back and you're like, oh, exactly as you said. Oh, wait a minute. That was only two minutes. And it really, it really, um, it really uh, hammers home how famous he is. And how rich mm-hmm. he is that this is that kind of thing. You wouldn't be surprised if it took a couple of days for a normal rich person. But this is, you know, within before the girls have left the restaurant. He is that famous of a so uh, of a celebrity. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a nice it sort of sets up this juxtaposition that the movie lives in where there are these things that are extremely well known or extremely famous over in Asia or in Singapore that Americans just have no idea about. And that's essentially like, that's one of the big things that the movie's about. And that's one of the things that Kevin Kwan wanted to do when he, when he wrote the books is he wanted to shed some light on culture, on the culture over there. Yeah. And it, it definitely does that. And this film, this scene accomplishes that that feeling so quickly and i think it's a masterful way to get across that message yeah and there's a couple other things that i think this scene i think it just does such a good job of setting up a lot of the things that are really important for this movie it sets up how important food is for them and for their culture and how they experience happiness and life, them being something that Rachel and Nikki bond over, but also something that is clearly an important part of Nikki's life. Um, They're going to make the dumplings. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but when they land, they go to the food center. There's the shots during the party of, like, they when she meets his mom for the first time, it's in the kitchen and there are all the shots of the food getting made. And this is, it's clearly something that Kevin Kwan really enjoys. And I think he probably loves food because there are, the books spend a lot of time talking about how good all of the food is and describing it. And it was one of those things that I wasn't really sure how they were going to capture in the movie because it kind of seems impossible, but they really do. Like, it, <laughs> everything just looks so great and makes me hungry just thinking about it, even though I had dinner right before we recorded. So I went to do some research on YouTube mm-hmm. about this film and just typed in Crazy Rich Asians, and, like, 90% mm-hmm. of the things that pop up are Crazy Rich Asian food tours um, of people going to, like, try the different restaurants that they went to or try all the different kinds of food that they made. So I think it worked um, because people oh, really yeah. enjoyed the food from this film. Yeah, that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, it made me very hungry afterwards. Uh, I love Chinese food as well, and I love to make Chinese food. Um, and so it made me want to go make some dumplings and, I don't know, all kinds of different stuff. 
Yeah, and then the other two things that this scene does, that this scene sets up really well, is it, I think it establishes really well the connection and the chemistry between Nikki and Rachel. And I, I, I didn't even realize how quickly it did it until I went and rewatched the scene before we before we were recording today because it really just hinges on that little bit of banter about her joking with him about you know we're in New York we can't really go that much further east and then so those couple of jokes and then also when he comes back from talking to his mom and she says oh I left you a bite and he says, you left me a very tiny bite. and But you can see the love between the two of them. And uh, I, I think that's really important to establish their relationship. Especially because <laughs> the other thing it establishes is that Nick is doing this pretty bad thing that really doesn't get dealt with enough in the movie. It's probably one of the like biggest criticisms of the plotting of this movie that I have, which is this lie that he tells Rachel for basically the first half of the movie with just not being honest about who he is and who his parents are and how much his mom is going to dislike her and how much of a problem it's going to be. It's just really not fair at all. And the plot of the movie does kind of hinge on it, so I don't really know how to fix it. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, on rewatch, it's something that's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pretty upset with Nick um, for <laughs> a lot of this stuff. I'm like, why didn't you just communicate? Like you led you yeah. led her into an incredibly difficult situation. I do think there's a line in there that you make excuses for and forgive people that are close family just because you know you kind of don't see that stuff. And I think that he's kind of blind to that. But the one thing that drove me the the craziest about it is that he just lies about how rich he is. Like, he just, he's, his family are billionaires, and he's, like, eating her dessert, and I don't know, I got the impression that she paid for it. And (laughs) that kind of thing, I don't know, and then when he gets in the airplane and he's like, yeah, we're comfortable, I don't know, it just, though, that did bug me about Nick. I'm like, why don't you? Why don't you communicate this this to Rachel here? Yeah, so the, he does... I don't know how much of this is conscious on the part of the movie and how much they, like, kind of messed up. He does have the one line of... I always kind of viewed it as, like, that's my parents' money and my money is... My, like, that's not my money. That's the family money. And so I do... Come, the book is a lot more explicit that because that he sort of got when he's living in America, he's like cut off from his family because they don't want him to be over there slumming it as a professor living in whatever dingy apartment he is living in. So the book is a little more explicit that he doesn't actually have this money when he's in New York. That makes sense. Yeah. But it only makes it like slightly better because he's still sense. rich and he could still go back at any time and get money. Like I don't know. It's a, yes. <laughs> so it's still yeah. even with all of that, it still bugs me just a smidgen less. Uh, I don't think that's a 
failing of the film at this point. I do think that the way that the film deals with wealth is problematic, but at this point, it hadn't really gotten me yet. I, I was just frustrated with Nick as a character. I'm like, come on, man, you gotta you gotta communicate this kind of thing. Yeah, it's creating creating a problem for the sake of movie because if he doesn't do that, then you don't really get this hour of amazing reveal because the secret's all already out. Ooh, the the other thing that I wanted to ask you about this scene or that I also thought about this time is how did you feel about all of the the graphics of the text messages and all of that? Yeah, I'm I'm a big sucker for that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. uh, I love it and I think it it was they did a really creative way of communi- of showing the way that people communicate through social media. So I liked it. I'm a big fan of when films do this in general. I'm not an unbiased source in that, I guess, because I always love it. No, I, I completely agree. I think it really works for this. And it's something that I wasn't sure how they were going going to do it. The one thing I don't really like about it is because it happens here so early in the movie, I wish they had found just one other place to include a scene like this so it didn't feel like it never happened again. That makes sense. I feel like it set up this this world that then, and this stylization that then just sort of got dropped for the rest of the movie, which I thought was a little unfortunate. I agree. And you know where you could have done that is like as a, or as part of the credits or something. Oh, that would have been fine. Yeah. yeah. So you could have been like, oh, did you, you, what you could have done is had those same two girls that were there at the beginning, uh, be at that hotel mm-hmm. at the end. And be like, oh, we saw the youngs and like all that stuff, and then the whole thing goes again. But you know, that's a that's a minor critique, I think. Yeah, 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 absolutely. This is why they need to hire uh, us it, to come in and you know uh, screenwrite for them because we could have come up with a great scene there. It would have put this film over at the top. Who could have been better than a couple of white guys? Yeah, exactly. I bet we really would have would have helped it crack the top. 10 yeah, for sure, for sure. For domestic box office. So let's move on. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about this opening scene? All right. So let's talk about the next scene that I wanted to talk about. And so it's sort of a duo scene. And it's this scene where... So it's right after Rachel has basically been told by Eleanor that she's never going to be good enough for her son. And Eleanor tries to scare her off. And... This is after they're making dumplings and whatnot. And so Rachel's very sad and she's hanging out with Aquafina with Paiklin. And this was uh, shot on location, by the way. A lot of this movie was shot on location in uh, Singapore. You can go on Wikipedia and they did a really, they have a really nice section showing you where everything is. But this is on, I hope I don't butcher this, but on Bukit Paso Road which is in Singapore, the cafe that they're eating at. And there, so there's a couple of things that I really like about this. First of all, Aquafina has really fantastic comedic timing basically through the entire movie. And it's one of the things that just keeps the movie driving forward and gives, at least gave me a lot of laugh out loud moments. But one of the things that I found really interesting about how this scene dovetails into the makeover scene that follows this is the 
because of her pep talk with Aquafina here, she, Rachel, takes agency and dis- decides to have the makeover scene. And I feel like she goes to Aquafina and Ollie and asks them for help, which you'll you'll know a little better than me, but to me felt like a little bit of a subversion of the makeover trope because normally it's something that is done to the character who's getting made over. It's like, oh, you're so hapless. Let me (laughs) apply all of our everything that we know to make you not so hapless and make you actually look good. But in this case, it's like she, using her expertise, which we've learned from the opening scene, is as a game theorist, she knows that this is what she needs to be able to play Eleanor's game. And so she says, hey, you help me, help me get a dress that looks absolutely stunning and help me get made up in a way that looks really great. And so because of that, the makeover scene, it's you don't see her really transform, which I feel like is normally how these scenes go. It's actually really just a vehicle for Aquafina and Ollie Oliver to make jokes and really be a comedic montage with a bunch of jokes. That's true. Including calling her uh, walking Ebola virus. Uh, yeah. I, I only had, <laughs> you know, I did have one issue with this scene. Sure, yeah, it, yeah. You know, one thing I didn't find very believable is they tell her that she doesn't look good in a lot of dre- those dresses, and <laughs> they are wrong. She looks amazing in every single one of them. Uh, she just is so gorgeous. And, like, so many she of really these dresses, is. I was like, oh, my goodness, she looks amazing. She should wear that to the party. But, you know, like, they end up settling on the dress they end on is also, you know, wonderful and fabulous. But except for the one virus one, um, I think they all just look so good. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, that was that was my pushback on that scene. But so, But they don't look Eleanor good. They don't need to look good. They need to look good in a way that will challenge Eleanor. Yes, this is true. And it needs to look good in a way that's, uh, that shows that uh, she is challenging Eleanor, but is going to look sophisticated and elegant. And a lot of those are, you know, they have a little bit too much personality. Um, I don't know that personality is the right word, but they just are not, um, they don't have the same kind of elegance that that final gown ends up with. Yeah, they're they're a little loud. A little loud. Yeah, that's the a word. A little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I I really love this scene, and I love Nick Santos as Oliver in the scene. Mm-hmm. I thought that he did a really good job, and I was really glad that they had Nick Santos in this film. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, him and Aquafina play really well off of each other. They do. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you saw on Twitter around when this movie was released, but this was the scene that at least Aquafina, I think uh, Aquafina and Constance Wu on Twitter uh, referenced when they were, you know, telling people to go see the movie. They would quote tweet like stuff with the movie with like bok bok bitches. Yeah. Uh, I did not see all of that, but it makes sense. It was very cute. Yeah. Very fun. And it, it does be... I think it's a little understated. It's not as called out as explicitly as the final Mahjong scene, which we're going to talk about. But I think it's not on accident that 
the game that the game of chicken plays into Rachel's expertise as a game theorist. And I think it's really, really deft that they were able to find her agency by letting her capitalize on the thing that she's made her the youngest professor at where the hell does she teach? Whatever school she teaches at. Yeah, some, it was at NYU, something like that. Um, Maybe. Something like that. Yeah, and honestly, I thought that the referencing the game of chicken is a better reference for game theory because game theory, as like, as far as economics, isn't really about winning games. Um, and I think they kind of portrayed it that way in this film. But the the game they do a little, yeah. yeah the game of chicken though is one of those g- kinds of games that often gets referenced in economics literature as kind of a way to, a metaphor for approaching a lot of different p- power struggles and issues. Makes sense. Do you have anything else you wanna wanna say about this? Scene? I do. One of the things that and. Because Oliver is so, so prevalent in this scene, one of one of the things that's tricky about this is Oliver is gay, or at least bisexual, but I, it's pretty clear. Uh, I think he's supposed to be coded as gay. He says earlier mm-hmm. in the film that he's the rainbow sheep of the family, so it doesn't have like a clear a clear label that it gives him. But that's you know not particularly important. The one thing that that I find you know kind of interesting about this uh, Singapore. Up until 2007, it was illegal to have, uh, in the country, it was illegal to have oral sex or anal sex until 2007. Jeez. In 2007, that was made legal for heterosexual couples and and for couples of women. So, (laughs) women-loving women couples. But it is still, to this day, illegal for men to have sex with men in Singapore. And one of the things as I was researching, there is this, the uh, 55% of the country believes that gay men have no rights to private privacy, just like generally that they, they have no expectations of privacy at all. And I, th- at the same time, there is a lot, a, a rising LGBT culture in Singapore and there's a lot of movement around those things. But it is something that is still criminalized and that there are, you know, people can be evicted for being queer. Um, people cannot get married. They cannot. There's a lot of restrictions on what kinds of property they can own and their ability to have any kind of free speech. And so Oliver as a character, you see some of that tension in this film but it's in the background, and it's it's hard to, to to. It's easy to overlook the political pressures that would be on a character like his in this setting. Yeah, I think it's hard for me to remember for sure. I think that's something that's explored a little more in the books, and something that I would hope would be on the docket for a second and in the second and third movie. Once you've really kind of settled a lot of this rachel rachel nikki stuff yeah it's and it's a tricky one to deal with because this is a movie that's made for uh american audiences primarily asian american audiences but it's made for an american audience and so 
Mm-hmm. It's it would be difficult and maybe an entire movie of its own to try to communicate these kinds of issues in Singapore. But at the same time, it's I wish I hope that in the future they get into it a little bit more. But it feels like some of the issue is that they wanted to avoid getting into it in order to bring in more box office receipts overseas. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. So yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a great scene and I love it, but there there are undertones to the of things that are worth criticizing there. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to move on to our next scene? Yes, let's on move on to the Newton Food Center scene. Though Yeah, I messed this up. We went out of order for the movie. I, I realized that. I, I put them in the wrong I, order. Sorry about no that. No worries, it's fine. Let's go back in time to the Newton Food what Center. Do 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 do? So this is right after they get off of the airplane. Um and the Newton Food Center, I was thinking of this, but also there's this thing that's so common in romantic comedies where romantic comedies a lot of the times the way that they're set up is they have you're supposed to be falling falling in love with the one love interest in this case you know maybe the more dominant protagonist role with rachel and then the other love interest Mm -hmm. who's nick and then a lot of romantic comedies also do this third love interest which is the city where the story is taking place And it seems clear to me that this is a lot of what this scene is doing, is it's exploring the city of Singapore and just going through, you know, Singapore is, is, it's one of these places, it's a city state. So the city is where like almost all of the population is, and then they have some holdings of territories uh, or of islands and things around the area. But Singapore and the city are in many ways synonymous. And they're really exploring so many different aspects of this. You get like eight glamour shots of the of the of the Sands Hotel as they're going through all of this, um, which is really interesting foreshadowing that it has. And then they end up going to the Newton Food Center, which is one of the one of the most famous places in Singapore to go eat. Uh, and he talks about how this is a place where you can get street food and that it can earn Michelin stars uh, is one of the things that he says. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the most important parts of Malaysian culture, culture and Singapore culture is the street food, the hawker culture that they have and the way the street food happens. In fact, the the hawker culture was declared as like a UNESCO heritage. Oh, what is it called? Um, it's such an important part of like human culture, the the hawker culture that they have. And it's really fascinating when they go in there and they sit down to eat. So they go to the Newton food center to meet up with, uh, Araminta and with Colin. Is that his name? The, the guy that's, I think it's Colin. Yeah. I can't remember his name and I didn't write that one down. Uh, they go in to meet and, one of the things that I particularly loved, there's all these different, you know, food stalls that they're going to, and Rachel's going along with Nick, and he talks to all of the people in their own languages. So he speaks Mandarin at one place, mm. he speaks Cantonese in another place, he speaks, um, oh, I forget, uh, he's, he speaks... I forget the the language, but the Malay language as well. And he orders in English and all of these different languages. And he is obviously fluent in all of these languages. And it's clear as well that the actor, uh, Henry Golding, also knows these languages as he's speaking. And for me, you know, language is such a, 
an important thing to me. Seeing the way he navigates all of these languages was really cool. And I really love this scene as an expression of it. And then they kind of meet and they get all of this food. And she kind of meets the the couple of that they're going to go to the wedding for. And you start to see a little bit of the tension coming into the plot. Yeah, I, I really like this scene because it feels, <laughs> it really talks to me when, when people come to visit me. I don't really plot anything, anything out except for all of the places that we're going to go to eat. Yep. It's like, well, here's where the best barbecue is. Here's where the best Chinese food is. Here's where the best bagels are. Here's where the best desserts are. And my mom made fun of me the first time Mary came to visit us in Seattle because she was like, are you planning to do anything that isn't eating? <laughs> I was like, well, uh, what else is there to do? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's the most important part. And it's clear that uh, that Nick is so excited to show her all the food. Mm-hmm. He's just like, you got to see this food that we're going to go see. Well, and it's one of those things where if you've lived somewhere, and especially if you have, like your family has lived somewhere, you know all of the best places to get food in a way that no one else does. Like you have decades of history of finding the best of each specific dish and knowing exactly what to get and where to order it and when to order it. And yeah, uh, it makes a big difference. Though I will say this is another moment of a little bit of controversy in this film because there is a lot Mm. of debate over, you know, the quality of the food at Newton food center. Specifically, there is this moment where Nick says best satay in the city, the, the meal they got. And that is, Actually, kind of a dig because there is another food center that is known for its satay that is not where this happens. Oh, really? Um, and from what I understand, the food center that they go to in the book is a different food center. And the one that's in the book is known for the satay, whereas Newton Food Center is not. So there is a little bit of, you know, drama going on with that. And also, Newton Food yeah. Center is seen as kind of a tourist trap. And But, you know, if you were very wealthy, it's probably a place you would have gone to eat a lot, which makes sense for, for Nick's character. Yeah, so the if I remember correctly, the book is a little, even a little more different because they don't actually, they do like a full food tour. They don't go to just one place. Yeah. They do go to that one food, that one other food center, I think, but they also go to a bunch of these like out of the way dives that no one knows about because Colin and Nick have, you know, they grew up in this city and they know all of the like hole-in-the-wall places. And that probably is a I, lot better... I think the book is... That's probably a lot better representation of the of the hawker culture as well than what's presented in Newton Food Center in the film. Yeah, but Newton Food Center looks fantastic. It does. Which, yeah. So I understand why they made the concession for the film. Yes, and, you know, this is one of the most popular things from the film, and it's... Uh, people love to go to Newton Food Center to order the food that they had in Crazy Rich Asians. So... Yeah, I don't have anything else to say about this scene, so we can move on unless you... Yeah, let's go ahead and move on. to say something yeah. else. All right, what's our last scene? So the last scene is the Mahjong scene at the end of the film. <laughs> yes. So I'll go it's through... Let, let me set up what happens in the scene a little bit, and then um, mm-hmm. we can get into this stuff. So this is kind of the final contra- confrontation between between Rachel and Eleanor, and they've been... Eleanor has been resistant to... 
Rachel throughout the film and essentially trying to destroy her relationship with Nick. And she has that one scene where she tells her she'll never be good enough. And they had the scene where they revealed that her mom had had an affair and left China and that she was, you know, a a daughter born from that relationship and that their family couldn't be seen to have anything to do with someone like, you know, from such a trashy family. And then Nick proposes to Rachel and you can tell that she's torn in a lot of different directions but she goes and meets up with eleanor in the in this mahjong parlor in this ma, um mahjong house mahjong parlor i think that's the way it would be called and they sit down and she invites eleanor there which is significant because these mahjong parlors is the kind of place where uh lower class or middle class people would generally go to play mahjong and an upper class mm-hmm. person like eleanor probably has not really set foot in a place there for a long long time and so they sit down and play the mahjong game and then you know they're playing the game it's going back and forth as the discussion is happening and she ends up saying that nick had asked her to marry her that she uh, is going to tell him no and that when in the future she's sitting with her perfect little grandkids and they have this perfect little family that she can remember that it was because eleanor chose to do it that nick would have walked away from all of it but eleanor wasn't willing to destroy his relationship with his mom in order to do that and then she turns over this one mahjong piece and the mahjong hand is 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 revealed eleanor ends up winning but only because uh, rachel kind of gave her the piece to win as she reveals as she walks out and that is the end of the scene. And now we can get into and break down the scene in more detail because uh, I find this one really fascinating. Yeah, not only is it revealed that she chose to give her the winning piece, she had the piece that would have given her the win. Yes, exactly. And she gives it to Eleanor and Eleanor thinks she's won. And then Rachel reveals, I had the win and I chose not to take it. Yes, the Mahjong is quite difficult here. So one of the things I was going to do, though, because this is bookended with the opening scene where she's playing poker. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't understand the poker well enough to explain it. So I was wondering if you could explain to us the poker and then I could explain to us the Mahjong uh, and we could see how this fits in with the with the the whole story. So the, the poker is rather simplified and essentially... It's a little hard to like construct a scenario where they would have been able to play this full poker tournament in front of the class, but I think that's essentially what happened. And what happens here is you see that her opponent, her the guy who will eventually learn as her student, has, I believe, he has two pair and then a high kicker. So two kings and I think two nines and a jack or something like that. This is a very good hand. This, you know, two pair gets beaten by things, but not by a lot of things. And then you see Rachel's hand, and Rachel just has stone cold nothing. I think she has, like, a nine high or something like that. And, but you all, and it's, it's hard. Like, if you don't know poker, you don't necessarily know to look for this. But Rachel has a huge stack of chips in front of her. And her opponent has very little chips. And so if this is a poker tournament, Rachel has a lot less to lose 
than her opponent does because if if they go to heads up for this for this pot then and she wins then her opponent is going to lose 100% of what he has and then he'll be bankrupt but if they go to showdown and her opponent wins she's going to lose whatever like 120th of what she has so she's coming at this from a position of dominance and she essentially bluffs her opponent into folding and the lesson that she says is i i was able to bluff you out of this hand be and well she actually probably didn't really do anything necessarily right other than play extremely aggressively in a way that made him scared like she was able to exploit his emotions but at that point he was probably pot committed and he knew that he had pot committed means that the money that you stand to win the money that you have to give up to try and get what you're trying to win is such a small percentage of what you're trying to win that you basically have to call but because he was too scared of losing she was able to just walk all over him. It's the same phenomenon if you're like a football fan where there's been a lot of criticism recently of coaches not being aggressive enough because rather than giving themselves the best chance to win the game, they want to take they want to lose the game as late in the game as possible. And so this has started to change in the last couple of years, but it's the same theory as like if you have a fourth down and like five minutes left in the game or whatever, and you're at the 50 yard line, you have to go for it Mm -hmm. rather than just trying to sure. If you don't make it, you're, you basically lose the game with five minutes left, but giving yourself a better chance to win is more important than feeling like you have a chance to win for a longer amount of time. And that, that's exactly what she's doing here. He's giving up and saying, I want to play more hands in case you have me beat. But she doesn't. She has nothing. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, it's uh, I find it an interesting bookend because when we get to the... So let me explain the, the Mahjong that's happening here. So mm-hmm. um, in the Mahjong, they, they've come in and... Typically what happens in Mahjong is the way that the seats are distributed is you randomize the tiles. There's uh, different wind cards. So you have north, south, east, and west uh, wind cards. And so you'll draw these tiles and whichever ones you t- you draw, that will determine kind of which seats that you end in. Um, in this scene, you have Eleanor um, is sitting on, she ha- she's sitting on the east, whereas Rachel is sitting on the west, which I think is, you know, a clear metaphorical indication here. And then... You have this uh, this moment where uh, Eleanor is kind of driving a lot of the 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 hand and what's going on with the hand, and she's uh, building up these matching tiles. And the way that you win a hand of mahjong is you uh, you are building up essentially for for people that are familiar of something like rummy, you're building up. You can either build up sets or you can build up runs. So you can either build up um, a collection of three tiles that are like the same number, or you can build up a collection of things that are in order kind of in the same suit, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and so mm-hmm. what you're trying to do is you're trying to get, and, and then you'll have pairs of like these kind of, I don't know how to describe this, like 
there's certain tiles that don't fit within the number of suits. They're just like special tiles of some kind, like the wind tiles and those things. So you're you're trying to build up a hand of 14 tiles, So which it comes down to 14 tiles that ha- are built up in this way. So you're going to usually have like 12 tiles that are either um, runs or sets. And then you'll have two tiles at matching at the end or whatever it might be. And uh, once you get these uh, and you have all these matching tiles that are in your hand that are all fitting these requirements, you, you show your tiles, you say Mahjong, and you win the hand. With that said, there's different qualities of Mahjong hands. And so when you're in one of these Mahjong parlors, based on the quality of your hand when you win, you may win more money. Eleanor's hand Mm -hmm. is a hand that is not a big money winning hand. It's, you know, uh, a bunch of different pieces that are kind of cobbled together that, you know, just isn't really like uh, a high quality hand, but it is one that can win a Mahjong. Uh, Whereas the hand that Rachel is building has... Not only are these sets of tiles um, that she's building, but they're sets that are within the same suit. So you could imagine she's essentially building a royal flush Mm -hmm. by by comparison. Uh, And so what she needs, she only needs one more tile to set this up and have essentially one of the best possible hands that you can have in Mahjong. Now, the other thing that's interesting is she is building all this around the suit of bamboo. And so... What you would call this with the bamboo, there's a term that's used with this, which is uh, the term juxing, meaning empty bamboo, which is also used to refer to Americanized Chinese people. You'll remember earlier in the film, they called her a banana because she was, quote unquote, uh, yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Yeah, Aquafina did it in that, yes. at that cafe scene we talked about. So this slang term basically means the same thing, a- empty bamboo. You're, you're Chinese on the outside, but you're empty on the inside. And so she's building up this tile of of the bamboo the bamboo suit that she's using. What's interesting is she ends up drawing the eight of bamboo, which is not a very important piece in the game in general. It's just kind of like a random piece, but it is the perfect piece that she needs to assemble this nearly perfect hand. It's also the piece that Eleanor needs uh, in order to build her just like decent hand. And so she she has this tile, she looks at it, she sets it up, and she holds it right above where her pieces are at, indicating that this is, that she if she keeps this, this is going to be the perfect hand. Uh, and right at this moment, she gives this speech to Eleanor that when she's, you know, has her family and they're all uh, together and she has this perfect little family that she's gathered, that she sh- will have to remember that it was her that gave it to her. And then she discards the tile. Now, once someone discards a tile, someone else can then claim the tile that is discarded and if you have the opportunity to uh, to claim a mahjong, then you get a uh, higher priority in this. So she claims the tile, Eleanor, and then she reveals her hand. And then uh, Rachel turns over her hand, and it is very obvious that she has this amazing, perfect hand that she discarded the perfect tile for that would have completely dominated the entire game, but that she discarded it on purpose, throwing the game so that Eleanor could win. Uh, is it matching exactly what she is doing in... In real life. Uh, how do you mean matching what she's doing in real life? That she is um, agreeing not to marry Nick in and giving up like this winning hand that she has so that Eleanor can have, you know, her little petty control of her of her world and that she can win this little battle that they've been having. Yeah, so I think there's actually a slightly deeper reading on what what Rachel is doing here 
And if you look back to the, and I think it, if you look back to what she says in that poker scene at the beginning, where she says, where she basically chastises him for playing, not playing to win, but playing not to lose. I think by doing this, she is basically playing, she's playing to her like half a percent or tenth of a percent outer to win. I think she knows that if she, so both courses, that she, both obvious courses that she has laid out for her are losing courses, right? She can either lose Nick, the boy, the man that she loves dearly, because she's going to let him go to his family. Or the other hand, the other course, which seems like a win, is not a win at all, because she will get the boy, she will get Nick, who she loves, but she'll be forcing Nick to give up something that he loves and something that's a big part of who he is. And I think she recognizes that that is not a win at all. That is not a life that she wants to have where she's with someone who she made such a big sacrifice for her. And so I think she knows the only way to thread this needle is to have Eleanor basically accept her into her life. And she knows it's extremely unlikely. She probably doesn't even really have any hope that it's going to work. But I think she knows this is her only play to be able to win the entire poker tournament is to give, show her real self to Eleanor, show herself as impressive as she is and hope that it's enough for Eleanor and she decides to let Rachel into the family. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It's it's I think that's a really good reading. She's essentially doing what she had she's preaching what she had practiced earlier in the film. Additionally, mm-hmm. there's just things that are not negotiable for her. Like she's she needs to be respected um and treated as a as a, a you know, fully-fledged human being and not demeaned and abused by Eleanor. Uh, for the rest of her life. So, you know, that's that also causes a major problem here. But one of the other things I find fascinating is she's throwing away a game of Mahjong in order to win, have a chance at winning so much more. Mm-hmm. And she is focused entirely on this other game, which is the game of, like, this thing that's going on between her and Eleanor. <laughs> oh, just my life. Yeah, yeah, but in the moment, Eleanor snaps up that piece and doesn't realize the significance of what she's done until the end. Even though with the things she's that um, uh, Rachel knows exactly what's happening because she's paid such close attention to everything that Eleanor is doing to build her hand. She she doesn't just discard this piece without knowing. She knows that Eleanor is going to snap it up and use it to win. And so in this moment, Eleanor I think also realizes she was focused on this mahjong game. But didn't realize that there was another game that was being played and the kind of move that Rachel was making. I find that fascinating as well. Yeah, I think it's really great. 
for this scene as a movie, uh, they brought in uh, Mahjong consultants to choreograph the scene. And, you know, it's really difficult doing... There's your choreography. Exactly. And so it's really difficult to put together uh, a Mahjong scene in a way that's going to have this kind of the stakes and the drama that this ends up having. So they worked really hard on just blocking out this scene and figuring out exactly where the cameras were going to go for each piece that so that they could clearly show what was happening in the Mahjong. But they also wanted to leave it so that they wanted to communicate what was happening clearly enough that someone that knew nothing about Mahjong could understand that something had happened, but also have the game and uh, enough layers to the game that someone who is a student of Mahjong would be able to see that there were some complex things going on. Yeah, and I I think they succeeded. This was the there was an article about this that we'll put in the put in the show notes. And this was something that was intentional by John Chu. He said he wanted the movie to work on a layer one level, but he wasn't going to explain everything about the culture. He wanted people to have conversations and to explore and realize that it's a whole world and it's not going to be reduced into something that can be easily explained or understood in a... (laughs) two-hour Americanized movie. Yes, yes. It's metaphorical, in not just on the terms of the movie, but the scene represents so much about the way that they made the film, a metonymy for the film, if you will. Mm-hmm. Oof, I love this scene. And this was uh, this was completely added for the movie. The This doesn't exist in the book at all. The character of Valinor is actually pretty changed quite a bit, but it... It's perfect. It works great. Yeah, this this scene is it's my favorite scene in the film. It delivers. I mean, what a climax for them to have. Uh, it works out really well. Yeah, I think it's maybe one of the best examples I can think of of making a very clever film adaptation choice. I agree. It's it's very good. Such a great choice. Do you want to talk about anything else for the scene, or should we move on to cleanup? Let's move on to cleanup. Okay, I wanted to talk about just a couple of things that I bumped on here. One of them was storytelling thing that I don't remember noticing the first time. And it kind of sticks out to me. It stuck out to me this time because it was really the only part of the movie that felt like this. And that's the scene when they're in the airplane and she's getting the explanation about their family this felt like very clunky exposition to me between the two of them that was like it was like some some parts of it she was not familiar enough with the family for how i'd expect her to be after them having been dated dating for a year or at least you know had having not asked questions and then there were other times where she was too familiar, you know, like none of it really rang true for me. And I, I just, I don't think it's their fault. I think it was a little awkwardly written. So I almost wondered if there was additional exposition somewhere that ended up getting cut for time and they had to shoehorn this scene in. Yeah. And I, I don't, I agree with you on this one. And I also, because this scene is introducing all the different people from the family 
and it's kind of walking through that's that's the scene you're talking about right where uh it's saying you know this is yeah. my this is my sister or this is my cousin or whatever all the different people are uh and showing them and he's kind of uh narrating over the top of the scenes that are happening and it mm-hmm. also did not work very well for me and uh, part of it was I just felt like the narration that he was doing over the top just, you know, I I get that they were, they were trying to go for a level of irony as he was doing it with what was happening on the screen, but it reads ironic, but in a way that isn't true. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it does. Cause she, she doesn't get to see the picture. Right. And it feels like it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're seeing this and it's trying to play on this dramatic irony that we know what's going on and she doesn't, but it doesn't, it just makes it seem like he's lying more than it seems like he's, you know, put, putting them in their most positive light. Yeah. So that was that scene. And then the other thing I bumped on, I'm guessing you had this as well, but Paik Lin's family. And I, I was somewhat conflicted about this because I think some of the some of the joke here is that they're the rich family, but they're the trashy rich family. And I think... I think that's sort of the point about some of um, her dad's, you know, off-color jokes, like pretending to be, uh, you know, speak with an accent and then joking about how, you know, oh, just kidding, I don't, I don't talk with an accent. And so I think those, uh, I was sort of able to convince myself that those were fine, but the whole running gag about her brother being a creeper. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah, yeah. and I, it doesn't... Yeah, do, that sort of stuff can become dangerous, and it didn't feel like, like, literally dangerous um, yeah. for, for women, and it didn't feel like it ever was treated that way with the seriousness that it deserved. It didn't feel like it had a point of view, it, especially at the end when he was, like, taking pictures of pictures of them and it was like just laughed off um and i don't remember if it bugged me in the theater i feel like it must have because 2018 was not that long ago but it was not something that i remembered as being a troublesome part of this movie but it definitely was on this watch yeah i didn't like that part at all Uh, so i just Yeah, that part was creepy to me. And yeah, I bumped up against uh, Peeklin's family quite a bit in similar kind of ideas. Um, I, you know, I enjoy Ken Jeong that plays the dad. But in this film, Mm -hmm. I just so many of the I don't mind off color jokes. I really like off color jokes. But the the ways these ones were put together felt hostile and non-consensual. And, uh, yeah, I was not a fan of them. Yeah, especially when he's sexualizing Rachel, yeah. which is just not very strange. Yeah, it's it's just it it's just gross and creepy to me rather than, I don't know, whatever it is what they were going for. Yeah. Uh, what do you have for cleanup? Yeah, so there's another scene that I bumped up against, which is, uh, this one's kind of small, but there's the scene where they're going out to, like, go to Nick's house. And they're driving, like, in the jungle, and then they find the, like, gate yeah. in the jungle. Yeah, no, I thought about this, uh, too. And then mm-hmm. there's these two-seat guards that uh, that they see, and it's just a really strangely written and blocked scene. Um, because these two guards have darker skin, 
and it plays up on this idea that these darker skin guards that are Sikh are dangerous or scary in some way. Whereas you have these, and then they're going on to the house. And th- that scene I did not like. I I thought it was, uh, for me, one of the most problematic scenes in the film. Yeah, I totally agree. The only The only partial defense I can offer for this is the... So the books are a lot clearer. The movie is very clearly situated in a rom-com world. And the books are a lot clearer that it's satirizing rich culture and everything that comes with it. And so the only possible defense I have of this is that there may have been an older version or older aspirations for the movie to be a little more satirical than it ended up being in which case maybe this would have made a little more sense in that world but it's possible um, i don't know yeah i don't know it's i i I don't think there's a version of this scene that i would really that would work for me i guess that's fair yeah so and then the other thing that i wanted to mention this one's a lot more complicated and i think I will, we can add into the show notes, there's an article by a lady named Sangeetha Thanapal. She's from Singapore, and she is a, a woman of color from Singapore. She is not Chinese, and she has a lot of criticisms of this film. And I found these things particularly salient. And one of the things that she talks about, so Singapore has this very dominant Chinese culture, um, and the this Chinese Singaporeans are seventy seven percent of the culture, and the you have the minority groups, the Malay and Indian people. The Malay people are the indigenous groups that are grouped from this country, and then there's a lot of people that have migrated into the country uh, from India, and they make up fifteen percent and seven percent of the country. And then the way the country is set up is it has very clearly delineated racial boundaries in their in the census system, the way that it's set up is you have four boxes you can check for each of these things. You can choose uh, Mandarin, or you can choose, or you can choose Chinese, Malay, Indian, or other. And then additionally, whichever you know boxes of these choose that you choose as you're like going to school or you're like uh, filling out the census, whatever it might be, you're required to learn the language from whichever culture you ended up choosing in school. Which there's some benefits to this. There you have everybody learns English as a language, and then whatever uh, other language this may, may be as they're taking. But one of the also side effects is that you have kind of this uh, segregation that happens between the the these different cultures uh, within the school system. And then additionally, there's a lot of like efforts to hide information and like census data and any kind of analysis of the outcomes of these uh, different racial groups. Uh, One of the ways that she talks about this in the article is she names this concept called Chinese privilege, uh, specifically talking about the the privilege of Mandarin speaking Han Chinese people that and the way they kind of colonize Asian regions in a lot of different areas and the way this is played in the film. And so one of the things that happens is pretty much everybody in this film is a Chinese Singaporean, uh, with the exception of you have Henry Golding, who is Malay. As we said, he's of mixed race, and so he's Malay, and he's also white. But then there's also uh, Michelle Yeoh, who is Malaysian Chinese, which is 
different, uh, but it's still Chinese. It's still Chinese in like fundamentally, and so you have the this very complicated tapestry that is put together and then the film kind of glosses over those things so there's a lot of criticism from people in singapore that is essentially whitewashing these these problems of racial inequality that happen things like chinese women are seen as more valuable whereas the muslim women uh, are not allowed to serve in civil service there's bans on speaking tamil there's where there's government funding to speak mandarin there's a lot of these racist stereotypes in films and things like that there's you know differences in civil liberties depending on different religious groups and there's a lot of eugenicist views on genetics and it's very common for chinese people to dress in brown face of indian people Ooh, throughout yeah. throughout the throughout the country and so those are the kinds of things that people when they come to this film are just going to miss entirely and it feels like i don't know in in some ways this film sometimes feels like it is propagandizing the the Singapore and this dominant Chinese culture that is in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, that's something where the sort of the same point as before, where losing that satirical edge and really moving into a world of glamorization, and not that if it were more clear where the satire was that it would automatically fix everything but not having it i think certainly hurts because it it just removes that point of view that has a little bit more judgment for these people who have more money than anyone should have and didn't really do anything to get it and yes and the film doesn't really criticize the 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 wealth that the family has either in fact, it kind of makes this no, argument it at that all. it makes this argument that they that there is value to them being so fabulously wealthy, and like that there's not really any moral quandary there, and so yeah, that's kind of problematic. I will say that critics of the film, generally from what I have read, are more critical of the film than they are of the books. That mm-hmm. the books do try to do the satire doesn't always succeed, but is at least attempting to do those things, whereas the film doesn't. But then the other issue on top of that is that this is an issue that you see throughout John Chu films. It's very Mm. similar to, you may recall, the issue that was happening with In the Heights. That it was um, talked about how it was depicting, like it's depicting Latino people in this really positive way. But also it's whitewashing which uh, Latino people are being put on the screen. And there's a lot of darker-skinned Latino people and black Latino people that that just didn't get the primary roles in that film. And the same thing happens in the Step Up films, where you have, mm. they're doing these, these dances that come from these minority cultures, specifically black and Latino communities, but it's it has this weird thing where it's the white people that come in and then are like doing those dances better than the people from those communities originally and those white people are the face of the film so there's a lot of criticism and a lot of a pattern of behavior here from john chu yeah that's 
unfortunate. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of interesting. Again, as I said, I love this film. I, I think it's a great film and there's so much that I loved about it. But there's also these criticisms. But I think that it's good to be able to approach a film with these kind of really important kind of deep criticisms and understand these things while still enjoying it. Yeah. And appreciating. I mean, that's where the difference between the paranoid and reparative lenses comes in, right? Mm Because you can, depending on how you're viewing it, you can recognize the good and the bad and have room for both of those things. Exactly. Because this film is such a landmark for Asian American people and like Chinese American people in particular. And there's a lot of anti-Asian hate going around. And this film is a really good pushback on those things. Yep. Absolutely. Do you have anything else that you want to say for cleaning? I have one more thing. It's a short thing. I want to... Okay, mine is... I want to make an apology on the behalf of the entire city of Las Vegas to the entire Uh city and country of Singapore for the existence of Sheldon Adelson, who owns the Sands Corporation and the the Sands Hotel. I apologize for the existence of... Of Sheldon Adelson. The hotel, beautiful. Sheldon Adelson, the person, terrible, horrible, just miserable human being. And I apologize that he existed on behalf of Las Vegas where he made the bulk of his wealth. Uh, sounds like he probably righted that wrong. Um, yeah. I think that's all it took. Right? Uh, uh, I can't stand that man so much. Um, he is no longer uh, alive. Which um, is probably a good thing. So that's my perspectives on Sheldon uh, Adelson. Okay. I'll end on a, on a positive thing. Uh, we t- I talked a lot about the clever ways this movie a- adapted from the book and made changes. Um, but And maybe we mentioned it a couple times, but I don't really don't want to lose sight that there were some really spectacular imagined visionary things in the book that I just can't imagine having been brought to life any better than this movie did it. And the two that really, the book does such a good job of explaining are The Wedding, which we didn't really talk about. But it's so Um, gorgeous and so beautiful. It was amazing. Oh, that wedding is so good. It is. It's, It's a huge production number. And it's one of those things when you read it, it's just like, there's no way this could be filmed as beautifully as I imagine it in my head. And the same thing with the the Young's house, their estate that's mm. just hidden all the way back there. So beautiful. And they really delivered on both of them for the movie. And I, <laughs> it, I mean, it helps make the film. It's really great. Yeah, it really does. It's, this film is shot so beautifully and like... Uh, you know, I complained about the Sands Corporation, but that, you know, the, the shot that they have at the top of the Sands Hotel uh, with the oh infinity pool and all that <laughs> stuff. I thought it was fake. Oh, wow. So incredible. Like, yeah. <sighs> it's, it lo- yeah, I, I had to go look it up after the movie. I, I, I didn't think something like that existed, but it does. It's real and <laughs> it looks so cool. It's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's just amazing. So, yeah. 
All right, so that'll do it for us for this week for Crazy Rich Asians. As always, if you want to send us any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and that's a good place to hit us up if you want to say anything quick and snappy, like hated the podcast, loved the podcast, or... Uh, why do your voices sound so funny? But if you want to send us anything a little longer form, you can do so at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And that email is in the show notes. And then for next week, go ahead and join us because we are going to be going all the way back to 1954 and watching the original Godzilla, which uh, neither of us have seen. So that'll be pretty exciting. Very excited for and this one. of course... Before we go into closing questions, a big thank you to our friend, friend of the podcast, and also beta listener, and as of recently, editor of the podcast, David Stewart, aka Estoriel. So thanks, David. Every time you hear one of these in the podcast, it means that David had to listen to this and then not edit it out. So uh, Yahtzee there. Yeah, we love you, David. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to go first for a closing question? Yeah, so my, my closing question, um, it is th- th- that moment where that we had talked about where they take the picture and the gossip spreads around the world so quickly. Ooh, yeah. yeah. W- what is an experience you've had with gossip? Oh. Wow, this feels like it should be easy to answer. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a hard one. I, I knew it was going to be a little bit hard for you, for you to answer right away. But it's an interesting one. Okay, no, here's one. So, in... (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't tell this story on a podcast, but in high school, I was dating a girl, a young woman who went to my school. We dated for about two months, so not really a very long courtship at all. And there was I went to a performing arts high school so we were at school for 12 13 14 hours a day and there was one evening where her back was really hurting and she was like laying down in the library and I just like gave her a kiss which was not allowed at our school but that's really all it was but a parent at the school saw oh no this happen and but for some reason like the story blew up from zach had given this girl that he was dating this young woman that he was dating a kiss to they were like making out in the library which was emphatically not what had happened um and i don't know why i don't know if it mattered that the story blew up from this but like we got called into the principal's office the next day and it was one of those things because it was it seemed so innocuous to us we were like i don't i think maybe even my parents got called i honestly don't remember but i was just like what why are we getting called in here i have not done And we did plenty of things wrong in high school. You know, there were plenty of other times we got called into the principal's office for like, we stole a ladder one time to get on top of the school to find a, get a Frisbee that accidentally ended up on top of the school. That made sense. Uh, But this one did not. So 
Uh, thanks a lot to that dad <laughs> who snitched on us and blew blew the situation way out of proportion. I love it. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. Gossip. It, it can uh, take on a mind of its own. So my story is I lived for a few years in Chile in South America. Um, and one of the things to, to explain kind of the cultural to- context of this is that my family is they my family is of the Mormon faith and I am also a practicing Mormon and so you know I was there's church down there and all that stuff and it, there's a very tight-knit kind of community and people a lot of times I don't think understand how kind of tight-knit this uh, the Mormon community can be but I had mentioned to someone down there that I was not feeling well. This was in Chile. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not Mm -hmm. feeling super well. And then, like, two days later, when I went to get my emails uh, from my parents, my mom was like, I heard you weren't feeling well. I'm like, how did you know this? I only mentioned it as an offhand comment to one lady. How did this get all the way back to you across the entire world in two days? And that moment, just when I saw this in the film, I was like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> like, you lived it, it went so quick and I was amazed. I was like, how, how is this possible? Who did you even hear this from? And she's like, oh, I heard this from person who heard it from this person who heard it from this person. And it shocked me. It was amazing how quickly that information could be passed along. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so my question for you. We have a pair of pretty expensive bachelor and bachelorette parties here which i will uh we didn't mention it earlier but does have the uh second appearance of ride of the valkyries i don't know if you know i did notice that yes in the in the stream family so so my question i'm guessing you did not do a bachelor party um i also did not really no did you it's uh yeah not really no I also did not, although I wanted to. We just ran out of time and also money. But, so if you had unlimited budget, what would your perfect bachelor party be? Dungeons and Dragons? I would play Dungeons and Dragons Mm -hmm. for my bachelor party. That's it. If I had unlimited budget, then it would come with miniatures and it would come with sets and it would come with, like, music and it would come with you know, lights and just all kinds of stuff. But that's what I would, that's what I would do. It would be an amazing just night of playing Dungeons and Dragons. Only one night. We could do more than one night. Totally. Like I'm down for that. Listen. Yeah. You could do a weekend. Yeah. I could do a total, a full weekend of playing Dungeons and Dragons. It would not be hard for me at all. Yeah. Sounds pretty Mm -hmm. great. And what about you? Yeah. So I had a little bit more time to prepare than you and Somewhat inspired by this movie and also inspired by the bachelor party that I wanted to have but was not able to have. So I would like, it would be, we'd have a chartered private jet and we'd have, I don't know, what, six, seven, eight of us, somewhere between five and eight of us on that jet. We would be loaded up with board games and we would have food tour destinations across the globe. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. But on the way to each location, we would also be able to play a different board game each time. That does sound like fun. Yeah. 
Sounds like a blast. Yeah, mine's a little more expensive. A little yours. bit more expensive. And also worse for the carbon footprint. Uh, yes, that is definitely true. Uh, though, you know, the food destination, I have to say, uh, the, that Dungeons & Dragons game would have been fully catered. So, yeah, oh, yeah so yeah, that yeah. would add to the expense a little bit. I think, you know, flying on a plane and playing board games and traveling all over the world would be a lot of fun. I have to admit, though, that if I win on this, uh, since I am a person, you know, I have vertigo. That the plane flight would have just completely wrecked my uh, my digestive system, uh, so that would be an interesting little you know tweak on that. That's probably true. That would that would be a, a hitch in the a system little hitch in the sure. system, but it would have been worth it anyway. All right, so that'll do it for this week, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.